Okay. Well, today we are continuing in Romans chapter 3. And last week we looked at the first eight verses of uh, the chapter. And today we're going to begin in verse 9. And, uh, and uh, my objective is to try to make it down through verse 20 if we make it that far. But we have a lot to cover. So we'll see how far we actually get. Uh, but uh, as we usually do, let's take a little bit of time, look down through those, for those eight verses we looked at last week. And uh, what are some of the things that you remember that stick in your mind that we talked about in those first eight verses last week? Okay. Okay. So he asserts uh, right off the bat that uh, there are advantages, great advantages, he says, great in every respect. And so he gives us a list, right? And what does this list contain? One item. <laughs> he gets one item out. <laughs> and then he goes off on a, apparently goes off on a, looks like on a tangent or something. Of course, with the Holy Spirit, there is no such thing as a tangent. But, uh, so he only gets one thing mentioned in his list. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned last week, when we, when we finally get to Romans chapter 9, we'll get the rest of the list. <laughs> but, uh, but he only gives us one item in his list here. And what is it? With the oracles of God. Okay, what's he talking about when he's talking about the oracles of God? Okay. Okay. So basically, it's just kind of reference to all of God's communication, uh, verbal communication to the Jews, written communication to the Jews. That's what he's referring to. And they have this great privilege of having the oracles of God, that God has come and He's spoken to the Jews and told the Jews things which the psalmist says He's not done for any other nation. So they really are in a privileged position. And there are a number of other privileges that they have, uh, advantages that they have, which, as I said, we'll talk about when we get to chapter 9. Uh, but but uh, this is the one that he happens to mention here. What other things did he talk about? Last week, what is this? He, he's, we've been going, we've been interacting with this diatribe, this interaction that Paul's having with this imaginary opponent or imaginary uh, debater here. Uh, what are the, what are the points that this imaginary debater is raising in objection to Paul's gospel? He says, and the proof of that is when he judges, like in the case of 
Okay. Showing that God is going to take action when he actually judges people. Okay, okay. So there are actually uh, three things that this opponent raises uh, that as he sees it, uh, this imaginary opponent of Paul's, as he sees it, and as I mentioned last week, this could be actually some of the things that Paul wrestled through as he confronted uh, to the Christians and the gospel that they preached. But there are three things that, that in, in verses 1 through 8 that this imaginary opponent accuses Paul of actually saying, which he does not say, and he argues that he doesn't say it. But Jim has touched on a couple of them. One is the suggestion that if God does not keep His promise what they perceive to be his promise of saving all the Jews, that God is not faithful. So, if they, so what they're saying is that Paul is calling into question the faithfulness of God. And then the second thing is he accuses Paul of calling into question the righteousness of God. And then he accuses Paul of calling into question the justice of God. And, and, and the, the way he does that is by suggesting that if God doesn't save all the Jews, then, then somehow he's not been faithful to his covenant. And Paul, that's what you're suggesting. And Paul argues back and he says, well, absolutely not. Uh, and and he, he argues that, that God will be found true even though all men are found liars. And he uses, as, as Jim mentioned, David as an example. And then he suggests that... Uh, then, then the suggestion is, well... Is God really righteous? Because because he doesn't uh, he somehow benefits from our unrighteousness. Uh, if we are unrighteous, that shows him to be righteous, and then somehow that makes him unrighteous. We're arguing in a circle, right? And Paul makes that pretty clear that while well, you're arguing in a circle here, if God cannot judge the Jews, Paul says. If, if God in His righteousness cannot judge the Jews, in His righteousness He cannot judge anyone. And of course, the Jew is not willing to go that far. <laughs> He's plenty happy to have everybody else judged. And so, uh, Paul argues, no, my gospel does, uh, does uh, thoroughly uh, support and communicate the righteousness of God. And then the, the last issue is the issue of the just. Well, is God just? If God somehow is benefiting from, from me being a sinner, then why am I still being judged as a sinner? Because really, my sin is doing a good thing. So it's really not sin, and I'm not really a sinner. And Paul just basically dismisses that argument as ludicrous. <laughs> uh, he says uh, that person's condemnation is just. And he mentions some accusations that are actually made against him that some people are actually saying that what Paul's proposing is that we sin more so that God could be glorified more. And Paul says uh, that is emphatically not the case. We'll see that more clearly as we go on through Romans. Okay? Anything else we talked about last week that you remember or that some of these things we said prompted your memory now and you want to share with us? Yeah. 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 Some commentators suggest here that 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 kind of what may be going on here is this is Paul the apostle arguing with Paul the Pharisee, and uh, 
so he's kind of thinking through some of the things and the objections that he made. Now, so not only just objections he hears from other Jews even now as he preaches the gospel, but some of the things that were in his own mind that he objected to about the faith and about the gospel before he himself was converted. And so, so in one sense, you could view 1 through 8 as kind of Paul the Apostle arguing with Paul the Pharisee. So it's kind of a fun way to think about it. I don't know if that's exactly what's going on there or not, but it is a possibility. Anything else? Okay, well, we come to verse 9 now. And uh, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 really is now, it's kind of the climax of this lengthy argument. And I think, as far as I know, certainly, it is the, the, the longest argument uh, that we get from the Apostle Paul in any of his epistles, this argument that he's been making from, from chapter 1, verse 18, up through chapter 20. Verse 20 of chapter 3. It's the longest. In fact, it may be the longest argument of any argument in, in the New Testament as far as I know. Uh, but he's, been, he's kind of been a hitting on one thing now for two chapters from the middle of one to the middle of chapter 3. He's been hitting on this one thought and he's coming now to kind of this climax, his grand conclusion. And he's still dealing to some degree with the issue of the Jews and the Jews' objection that they are not under the wrath of God. So he's still dealing with that issue in his grand conclusion. But as he reaches the end of his grand conclusion, he shows how what he says about the Jews applies to all the world. Okay? So he really reaches now this grand climax in which is the sum of his argument is, as we see in these verses, is that there is none righteous and that everyone is under the wrath of God. So, let's read the first... Uh, let's read, begin first reading in verse 9 and read down through verse 20 and, and then we'll, uh, we'll uh, think some, about some more introductory thoughts and go on from there. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God or 
indicted by God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay? So, so we're reaching now this grand climax, this, this kind of final picture of, that Paul is painting of the terrible, absolute, universal predicament of mankind. Okay. And, uh, and he's been hammering this a long time, so we may be getting a little tired of it, right? <laughs> well, just take heart, because in the very next verse next week, if we get that part of this week, in the very next verse, things are going to change and, 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 and things are going to pick up. But one of the problems we sometimes have when we study and read the Bible is we read, we get into these difficult parts or the parts that, that deal with difficult and unpleasant things and we want to hurry through those and get to the blessings and the promises and all the good things, right? Okay. Well, when we do that, sometimes we really miss how great the blessings and the good things are because we haven't taken time to really contemplate what they contrast with. So, so it really is to me, it is a good thing that we have spent so many weeks talking about this issue. And I have to confess to you that as I was studying this passage yesterday morning, I was studying there at the kitchen table and I just learned to love these verses. They became precious verses to me. And I thought this is so ironic. <laughs> you know, here is this you know, the, the classic picture of the depravity, the total depravity of man, which we'll talk about this morning. And as I read it and as I absorbed it and as I thought about its description of me, I felt such a relief. Because I just thought, He knows. He knows. I don't have to hide. I don't have to struggle. You know, I get the picture of Adam and Eve in the garden after their fall. And what do they do? You know, they cover themselves with, with fig leaves and they go and they run and they hide from God. And, and, and you think about how foolish and how silly that was because God knew. But not only did God know, but He came to the garden. And as I, as I just reflected... He knows. He knows how deep it goes into me. He understands why I act the way I do and why I think the way I do and why I talk the way I do and why I'm motivated. He understands that because He knows how deeply and thoroughly I am permeated with sin. I don't have to hide it. I don't have to pretend to God that I'm something else. And thank God I don't have to work somehow work hard enough to overcome that because I can't. And so I just found these verses precious to me. I, you know, I may be psychotic, I don't know, but they were, I, I, I love this passage after I got done studying it. And I, and I hope you will too. But, but he starts out there uh, uh, in, uh, in verse 9 and he says, uh, he raises this question again. He's, he's, it's, this is kind of the end. Verse nine is kind of the end of the diatribe, and then and then Paul just comes 
with this onslaught of verses from the Old Testament, uh, beginning there in the middle of verse 10 and down through verse 18. Is in, all of that is quotations from various verses of the Old Testament, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But there in verse 9, we have kind of the end of the diatribe where we have one last final question, uh, actually two questions. First, he says, what then? Which is kind of an introductory question, you know, kind of, well, you know, okay, so given all this, what? And then the final question is, are we better than they? Or maybe, are they better than us? And you're going, huh? <laughs> well, in reality, that second question there that is translated in the New American, are we better than they, is one word in the Greek. Okay. And the problem is, uh, we're not exactly sure how that one word should be translated. And I don't want to give you a bunch of technical Greek stuff because two things. One, I barely understand it myself. Uh, and, uh, and it would uh, communicate that I know more about Greek than I ever began to know. And the second thing is uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't enjoy it either. <laughs> so I'm not going to go into all the, the, the reasons why this particular word, sent, one word sentence in the Greek is so difficult to translate. Uh, but it actually has about two or three chief different ways it can be translated depending on the voice that it's in and how that voice is to be translated in the Greek, okay? For those of you who know grammar, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who don't, don't worry about it. But, but it can be translated the way most of our modern English translations translate it and the way the New American translates it is, 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 uh, is are we better than they or do we have an advantage or do we excel, okay? That's kind of the idea. But, Again, depending on how it's translated, it could actually be translated just the opposite, which is, are they better than us? Or do we have no advantage then? Okay. Uh, or it could be translated a third way, which is, uh, which is, am I now making an excuse? Or am I offering excuses? Okay. And... Uh, uh, so, but the, the kind of the two primary ways is, is do we have an advantage or do they have an advantage? <laughs> do we have an advantage? Do we excel them or do they excel us? And, and presumably who he's talking about here are the Jews. Okay. Do the Jews have an advantage now or not? It's kind of the last question we're asking. Given all you said, Paul, because once, Paul, you said... No, you don't have an advantage. The law is no advantage. Circumcision is no advantage. And now you said we, are, we have great advantages in every way. So, do we have an advantage or not, Paul? What then? Okay, that's one way. The other way is, well, Paul, given all you said, does that mean we really don't have any advantage or maybe even they've got more advantage than us? Okay. And, uh, and fortunately, Paul's answer mutes the significance of how we translate the question. If Paul had answered yes to their question, then we'd have to figure out who's got the advantage, the Jews or the Gentiles. Right? 
So we'd have to know, we'd have to really know for sure what the question was. But since Paul says no, we know that neither Jew nor Gentile has an advantage. And that's the point that he goes on to make, right? Okay. So, uh, so we don't know for sure exactly how that second question should be translated, but given Paul's answer, that's not so critical. Okay. But the, the point is that Paul is, Paul is leading in his argument to his, to his grand conclusion that there is no distinction between Greek and Jew. But we are a little bit surprised if Paul is, if the question is, do we then have an advantage or not? Paul, you said one thing and you said another. Do we have an advantage or not? And Paul says, absolutely not. And we go, wait a minute, Paul? Just eight verses later, you said you have advantages great in every way. And it just seems like Paul's all over the map on this thing, right? I mean, this guy can't be consistent uh, with himself over just a few verses. And in the previous chapter, the reason it came up in chapter 3, verse 1, is because in the previous chapter, he'd argued that the law and the circumcision was no advantage. So, by the end of chapter 2, you've got them thinking there's no advantage. So, they ask, is there any advantage? And then he says, yeah, we have great advantages. And then you get to chapter 3, verse 9, and you say, is there an advantage? And he says, no, there's no advantage. And you're going, what's going on here, Paul? <laughs> well, we have to think like Paul thinks. Scary as that may seem to you, okay? What Paul is saying is that in what is referred to in theological circles is, is in a salvation historical sense, the Jews have every advantage. In the, in, the, in, the, in the redemptive plan of God, how he was going to carry out his mission of reaching and winning the world, the Jews play a significant, advantageous, privileged role. Because it is through the Jews that God communicates His message to the world. It's through the Jews that He communicates His Gospel. So they get the first access. They're the first ones to get the message because it's going to be through them. So they hear it first. And they hear it the most clearly. So yes, in a salvation historical sense, they have an advantage. But Paul's not talking about that. That's not the issue that Paul's dealing with in Romans. In Romans, the issue Paul's dealing with is how is man saved from his sin? And in a, and in, so in the salvation historical sense, the Jew has great advantages. But in the issue of moral culpability and accountability before a righteous God for our personal sin and offense of Him, the Jew has no advantage. He stands on the same plane as everybody else in the world. And that is the conclusion that Paul is going to forcefully argue in this passage, not from his own reasoning or arguments, but from Scripture itself. So he says, no, there is no advantage in this, in this, in respect to the moral culpability of every human being as a sinner before a holy God. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, between Jew and Gentile. He says, we have already charged that. He's just referring back to his argument 
beginning in chapter 1 about mankind in general, the beginning of chapter 2 about the moralist, and then the middle of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3 about the Jewish moralist and the, and, and the Jew in general. He has charged that all Jew and Gentile are under sin. Now, we read by those words very quickly, but we should stop and think about them. Paul uses a phrase here. That's first, his first time to use it here is this phrase, under sin. And that phrase is loaded. It tells us all kinds of things about sin. It implies all kinds of things about sin that we might otherwise not know. And the first thing is the word under. What does that imply to us about sin? Control. It has dominion. Now, most of us probably, uh, before we were saved and we thought about sin, and maybe even after we were saved and thought about sin, but before we were saved and we thought about sin, we didn't really think about sin. We thought about sins, right? We thought about plural. We thought about, well, I, you know, I, I committed these sins, right? Well, what's interesting throughout the book of Romans that Paul uses the root Greek word for sin many, 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 many times, of course. But only three times in the entire book of Romans does he use the plural. And two of those are quotations from the Old Testament. So of all the times that Paul uses the word sin, or the root word for sin, it's all, almost always plural. I mean, almost always singular throughout the book of Romans. And that tells us something about the way Paul thinks about sin. And, and, and one of these things, one of the things he's telling us about sin is that we are under it. It has dominion. Okay. And, and when we, before we were saved, we didn't think in those, most of us didn't think in those terms. What we thought is, well, you know, I just choose to do bad things. And at any time that I want to choose not to do bad things, I can choose not to do bad things, right? That's the way we think. We sometimes think that way of Christians. <laughs> okay. But, but, he, but what he's saying is, no. You are under sin. Sin has dominion over you. And, and so we begin here in this verse to pick up an idea or a concept of sin that is foreign to us as unbelievers usually, but is dominant throughout particularly the book of Romans. And by the time we get to the end of Romans 8, we're, we're going to be thinking differently about sin than we started. Because Paul does something in using the singular name, singular word for sin, rather than the plural. He's communicating to us that sin is not simply something that we do. It's not simply a series of actions that we take. But it is a phenomena. It's a, as a philosopher would say, it's a state of affairs that exists within the human being. And Paul 
personifies it throughout Romans. I'll show you how here in a minute. But he personifies. And what I mean by what I mean by that is not that Paul is saying that sin is a person, but that he, but that he attributes to 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 sin certain actions and characteristics that we think of when we think of a person, a live person. So there's a sense in which sin is not just this kind of dead thing in us. It is, it is a force to be, con- to be dealt with. It's a force to be confronted. Okay. It's a, it, it, it has some kind of, not literally life, but it has some kind of life to it. So, for example, let me give you some examples throughout Romans, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll read them to you fairly quickly here. Uh, in, in, uh, in chapter 5, verse 12, Paul talks about sin entering into the world. You get this idea of sin coming into the world. In chapter 5, verse 21, and verse 6, 14, we, we learn about sin reigning in the world. Okay, you get that kind of personification. It reigns like a king or like a potentate. Uh, in chapter 7, and, and verse 17 and 20, and in chapter 8, verse 3, he talks about sin indwelling. The idea of sin living in people. Okay? He talks about, in 7.14, he talks about us being sold to sin. So you get the idea of sin is the purchaser. Sin is the buyer. It has bought us. It owns us. Okay. And then in uh, 6.17 through 20, he talks about sin as our slave master. Sin, and, and you know, to us here in America in the 21st century, you know, that maybe not connects, that doesn't connect very well. But to a first century Christian in Rome, many of whom themselves were slaves, that's a powerful picture to them. That sin was their master. Sin tells you what to do, where to go, what to say, how to live your life, what you can do, what you can't do. Sin does that because sin is your master. You don't have a choice in those things. In chapter 6, verse... Excuse me. Well, Rick, I was just thinking this concept that you're, you're presenting here actually answers the big question that people have whenever there's some heinous crime out there and they say, how can someone do such a thing? It's because of this very concept yeah. you're talking about. And if we get to understand that to the point that really that question goes away. Yes. We know why the person does They're that. They're acting out of their nature. Yeah. As, so, as, exactly. as we would. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, going on. Uh, in chapter 6, verse 22, this is an encouraging one. Uh, people are actually freed from sin. So sin is a slave master, but they can be freed from sin. Okay. Uh, in chapter 7, verse 8, sin can die. That's encouraging, isn't it? Sin can be put to death. Okay. In chapter 7, verse 9, the very next verse, we find out that sin can come alive. Sin can revive. Okay. And in chapter 6, verse 23, and uh, also a related verse to chapter 5, verse 12, sin pays wages. So we get this picture of sin. And this is the, 
you know, we haven't gotten to all these verses yet. All these verses come after the verse we're looking at right now. Okay, But this is what's in Paul's mind when he says that both Jew and Gentile are all under sin. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about a dominion that sin has over us. Because it has as we shall see in these quotes from the Old Testament, it has permeated our entire being. And we are its slaves. Well, so he says that both Jew and Gentile, without distinction and without exception, are all under sin. We all are under the dominion of this force that actually indwells us. It's down in there in this body. And it is our master. And we have been sold to it. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking... You know, we, we, we were born that way, right? We, we grew up that way. We're so familiar with it. We don't even realize it. But I couldn't help but thinking about Adam and Eve after they ate the fruit of the tree. How they went from that perfection of innocence to Romans chapter 3 in a split second. You know, I, I just I wish I could feel what Adam and Eve felt after they ate the apple, so that I could understand what has happened to me. So that I could appreciate how devastating this thing has been in my life. And so Paul then goes on. Now he says, We've argued these things, I've charged these things that both Jew and Gentile are all indiscriminately and every single one of them are all under sin. He goes on then to prove his point by what several commentators call his string of pearls. <laughs> you may not think about these as pearls, but they really are pearls. And Paul strings together here a series of quotations from the Old Testament. And what's unique about this particular quotation, a uh, 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 series of quotations here, is that uh, actually there's a couple things. One is it's the longest quotation Paul in all of Paul's epistles. The longest quotation from the Old Testament. And it also uh, is comprised of more different verses from the Old Testament than any other quotation of Paul's, in Paul's writings. So he's really, he's, 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 you know, he's, he's put the net out there in the Old Testament and he's pulled together a bunch of verses and he just fires them at us like a machine gun. You know, he just that, 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 one after the other. And the awesome thing is I was looking at the list of verses and contemplating them is how many other verses there are he could have used. But these are the ones he chose. And some commentators suggest that there is a possibility that this whole passage is actually some kind of early church litany. That, that maybe, just because of the way it's done, it may be some kind of ancient first century, and we have to talk about early first century now because Paul's writing 
uh, in about in 60 AD, 60s AD. So it would be very early church, some kind of litany or hymn or something that that was known in the church, possibly. Uh, or the other option is that Paul is standing there, if you will, dictating Romans to his secretary, as we talked about. He had a secretary that was writing all of this book down for him as he was dictating. And these verses are just the verses that are coming to his mind by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he's trying to, trying to forcefully demonstrate to the Jew that the Jewish Scriptures tell the Jew that this is what is true about the Jew because it's true about all men. And I like to think of it as the second way. <clears throat> I like to think of it as just Paul's just, it's just coming at him, you know. And these verses are just coming and he's just, they're coming right off the top of his head and it's just burning in his heart as he speaks it. There's none righteous. Not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is not one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of axe is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Misery and destruction are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And he's quoting from several different Psalms and from Isaiah and possibly from Ecclesiastes. But but these verses are just coming out of his heart. This is a guy who really understands the power of the gospel because he really understands the condition of man. And his selection of verses, guided, I do believe, by the Holy Spirit, uh, has a couple interesting features to it. And first you'll notice that in verses 10 through 12, it's kind of man's condition vis-a-vis God. Man's condition in relationship to God. He doesn't, he doesn't seek for God. He doesn't understand God. He's turned away from God. He doesn't walk in God's ways. It's man, man condition vis-a-vis God. But then you pick it up in verse 13 and down through verse 17. It's kind of describes man's condition vis-a-vis one another, vis-a-vis other men. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues are deceitful. Their lips are behind their lips or under their lips is the poison of asthma, etc. And it, and it, and it, so, so Paul's picture here is a picture of how destructive sin has been in our relationship with God. And how destructive our sin has been in our relationship with one another. But using that same division there between verse 12 and 13, there's, there, he communicates two other 
kind of interesting things. Uh, so one is the God thing and the man thing. Uh, but uh, the other is that the first few verses there communicate the universality of sin. Notice how in those first few verses, 10 through 12, it's none, none, no one, all, etc., etc., etc. It's the absolute universality of sin. There are no exceptions, folks. You are not an exception. I am not an exception. There are no exceptions. None, 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 no one. There is not even one, he says, over and over again in those three or four verses. So, so the first part of his, of his uh, katina, as they call it, his list of verses, he's communicating the universality of sin. That it includes all men. But in the last part, you'll notice how uh, he does this a little bit in the first part because he talks about the mind without understanding in the first part. But you really pick it up in the second part where he talks about the throat and the tongue and the lips and the mouth and the feet and the eyes. Right? So he starts using all these anatomical aspects of man and talks about how sin has affected all these various anatomical aspects of man. Right? With quite interesting, a real strong emphasis on what we say. <laughs> you know? But, but the point of that, the point of that second part the point of the first part is the universality of sin over the whole spectrum of mankind. But the second part emphasizes so clearly to us what we refer to in theological circles as total depravity. That every aspect of the human being, the individual human being, is impacted by sin. Now, we have to understand what the doctrine of total depravity teaches and what it does not teach. Okay. <clears throat> and theologians are quite emphatic on this. The doctrine of total depravity does not teach that man is as bad as he can be. One commentator said, such a thought is absurd. And it is. We all know people who do good things. Paul even himself in chapter 2, verse 14, talks about those who by nature do the things of the law. We're not all murderers or rapists or bank robbers. We're not as bad as we could be, right? So total depravity is not suggesting that everybody is as bad as he could be. What total depravity does say is that every single part of our being is contaminated and stained by sin. So while I am not as bad as I could be, I could go out and murder somebody this afternoon. <laughs> you know, I, I, could, I could entertain thoughts today that, that I wouldn't otherwise entertain that would be horrible and despicable thoughts to think. There are things I could do. that I have not yet done. But, there is absolutely nothing I can do. I can't teach a Sunday school class. I can't celebrate my anniversary with my wife today. 
I can't mow my neighbor's lawn. There's nothing I can do that isn't tainted with sin. That's what total depravity is. And I thought about a curious illustration of this came to my mind today while I was in the shower. Maybe because I was thinking about, let's see, what shirt am I going to wear today? <laughs> but, um, and you women are much more in tune with this than us guys are, but even us guys are pretty in tune with this. You know what shirts you want to wear to church on Sunday morning, right? So, you go into the closet, you know, it's five minutes to nine, you got to leave. <laughs> you grab the shirt off the, ca- off the rack and you look at it. It's got right there, it's got a little ink stain right there, right? What do you do with the shirt? Do you put it on? <laughs> Mike says, Mike says, yeah. Walk around with your hand like Well, my wife has my wife has trained me. No. You don't. Even just a little stain. You know, and and my wife, you know, I'm sure I'm sure in the grand scheme of the whole world, she's not an expert at this. But in my family, when it comes to stains, my wife is an expert. She is at war with stains. She's got books about stains. (laughs) And probably most you women do. Right. And I always feel a little sheepish, you know, when I pull a pair of pants off the rack and I realize they got a spaghetti stain from last Sunday's dinner, you know. You know, it's been sitting in there for a week, you know. And if it's in a place that's not very conspicuous, it may have already gone through the laundry a couple times that way, you know. And I'm going, oh man, I am dead meat. <laughs> when my wife sees that stain. We can have a perfectly good garment that will serve our purposes, but we will not wear it because it has even a tiny stain. Well, folks, every thought we think, every deed we do, every word we speak, every motivation we have is to one degree or another tainted with sin and God cannot accept it. God rejects it. Because it is stained. It may look perfectly good. Folks, I'm a painter. Right? I live all day with stained clothes. I used to come home from work and my kids would go, Oh, Dad, you're all dirty. I go, This is not dirt. I put clean paint on people's houses, okay? This is clean paint. You know, usually there was some dirt involved too. but, But, you know, so I'm accustomed throughout the day of living with stained clothes. You know, they serve the purpose. They cover what you people don't want to see, right? Okay. But when I get home, the first thing I want to do, even though I dress just pretty casually all the time, first thing I want to do is get in some clothes that don't have stains on them. Folks, sin has stained everything about us. And God can't accept any of it. Because he is holy and pure and cannot look upon sin. 
And so Paul describes for us this remarkable condition that has permeated everything about us. And we can read these verses and we can say, well, I don't always curse. And my lips are not always bitter. No, they're not always. James tells us it's possible to bless and curse out of the same mouth. And we do, don't we? But when I stand before God and God, God gives me this list and He says, here, Rick, here are all the things you did and here is the... Here is the sting which has permeated all of your life. Am I going to stand up in my hubris before God and say, well, God, you should let me into heaven because I could have been worse? Paul says, no. He says, what the law does is the law makes it so that when you stand before God, your mouth is stopped. And you are indicted by Him. So this law that, whether it's the law of Moses that he's talked about so much, or whether it's that law written on our hearts, this law that we have put so much confidence in, that we have decided that because... Our problem is not sin, but sins, and we can deal with sins. We just can't deal with sin, so we don't, you know, we don't know about the sin thing. We just ignore that, and we think, well, you know, I can get a handle on these sins. All I have to do is just one by one, just do them right. And so, if I've got the law, that'll guide me, and I can trust the law to guide me to do what is right. And I'm going to rely upon the law. And when I stand before God, and God holds that law up, what is it going to do? Is it going to commend me for the things that I have done that were good? Or is it going to show how thoroughly and completely I'm stained with sin? That's what it's going to do. Because by the deeds of the law, he says there in the last verse, there will be no flesh justified in his sight. The law will not justify me. By the law comes the knowledge of sin. And when I stand before God, unless somehow something happens, unless somehow there's some other kind of righteousness available to me. I stand condemned. Not because I'm as bad as I could possibly have been, but because I am thoroughly and completely and throughout all of my being stained with sin that would not follow God that would not seek Him, that would not understand Him. My throat was an open grave. It revealed the heart out of which my mouth spoke. I spoke words, thoughtless words, unkind words that pierced and cut people who were made in the likeness of God. And over and over and over again, unless something happens, unless God somehow does something to give me some kind of righteousness apart from the law, I stand under the judgment of God. And He is just when He judges me. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Next week, we'll find out.